You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you and we're thankful. We are thankful that two millennia ago, Jesus came to this earth making the ultimate mission trip. It was heaven's mission to seek and save that which was lost. It was the desire in the heart, your great heart of love, that we would have every opportunity to see you as you are and be drawn to you. Now, I am asking that you would work that work tonight. None of us came out to hear some fellow speak. We all of us have come out to hear from you. And so we are asking that via the foolishness of preaching, you would draw our hearts to your own, weld them inextricably to your heart. I pray that you'd own us. Lord, you and I both know that there are people here tonight whose faith is not strong, but in their hearts there's a desire to walk closely with you. And then there are great men and women, mothers and fathers, and grandmothers and grandfathers in Israel, maybe grandchildren in Israel. Their faith is strong. I'm praying you would encourage them and give them a renewed vision and a renewed faith. Speak to us, dear God, we pray. We ask it of you. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. In San Diego, California, outside a church that you will find at the intersection of South 32nd and Imperial Avenue, a quarter of a mile from the 15 freeway, which is to the east, and about a mile and a half from the Pacific Ocean, which is to the west, there is a church. The church is Christ the King. It's a church. You wouldn't be surprised to see it. And outside the church, you wouldn't be surprised to know that there is a statue of Jesus. But you might be surprised to know that this one has a unique feature. You may not have seen a statue of Jesus like this. The statue of Jesus has no hands. It was not built that way. It was built with hands and feet and all of the things you would expect a statue of Jesus to have. But some decades ago now, some vandals came by the church and broke off the hands. Before anybody could do anything, one of the ministers of the church, a priest at Christ the King Church, brought out a little sign. He wrote on, maybe it was cardboard, I don't know, and he placed it at the base of the statue. He had written on the wee sign, I have no hands but yours. And that impressed people. And so they incorporated the saying into the statue itself. They affixed either a plaque or they carved into the statue of stone the words. You can see them today. When I read about this, I wanted to look it up online. Is this true? I googled Christ the King Church. I found the address, South 32nd at Imperial, or is it South 32nd at Imperial? It's one or the other. I said, there's a church. I went on Street View, zoomed up to the church found the statue, zoomed in on the statue. There it is, no hands, but now incorporated into the statue thing itself. There's that phrase, I have no hands but yours. 
A powerful statement. I wonder what it says to you, Jesus saying, I have no hands but yours. What does that say to you? And so tonight we're going to look at a story in the Bible. It actually is a parable. The sayings of Jesus, a teaching of Jesus, a parable that speaks of the love of God. It speaks of the worth of every person in the sight of God. It speaks to us about the great importance of reaching the lost. And it tells us that God has no hands but ours. Would you open your Bible to Luke chapter 15 or maybe scroll there on a device? Luke chapter 15. Interesting chapter, three consecutive parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, prodigal son. And they were all prompted by the religious leaders and their biting, bitter criticism of Jesus. Start with me in verse 1. The word of our Lord says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. That's the interesting thing about Jesus. He attracted people. Here, Luke writes, the publicans and sinners. Tax collectors were considered traitors. These were Jews who worked for the Roman government and collected revenue, collected taxes from Jewish citizens for the Roman government. Jews loathed. They despised the occupying Roman government. By this time, they had been in Israel for fully four centuries. And they were detested, publicans and sinners. A catch-all term, really. Dr. Luke is saying, here is the divine Son of God, the Holy One, the one who has never sinned, and yet he is drawing into his presence the dregs of society. Like a porch, light attracts moths in the months of June and July. While it probably didn't seem too scandalous to the everyday Jew in the eyes of the religious leaders. This was the end of the world. A religious man fraternizing with evildoers. And notice, they came to hear. That's what the Bible tells us. They came to hear. What were they there to hear? They were there not to hear gossip, not to hear opinion, not to hear somebody railing on this segment of society or that. They were there to hear his teaching. That is significant. Jesus was offering them hope. He was speaking to the needs of their hearts, you understand. Somebody told me the other day about a certain counselor who said, what people need today is hope. You heard Vicki Griffin a short moment ago saying something very, very much like that. And that, friend, is what you and I have to offer the world. Hope, more specifically, the blessed hope, the ultimate hope, the hope of an eternity spent in a better land. Hope through Jesus. Come on and say amen tonight. Amen. And now we see... Another two groups. We're looking in Luke 15 and verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eateth with them. 
that murmur went like a ripple through the crowd. The guardians of society, they were, incensed that Jesus didn't condemn this lot. The rabbis had it backwards. They believed that a sinner had to repent before God would accept them or love them. They had a saying that there is rejoicing in heaven when one who has sinned against God is destroyed. Hard to imagine, isn't it? So lacking in compassion that when sinners gather around a teacher of Scripture, they wish that the lost people would just go away. Could we be the same today? You might not be a complainer in word, but you might be a complainer by your actions. I'll challenge you just a little bit. Someone the other day meant to me a, mentioned to me a certain publication, a certain website. Some would say it upholds certain standards, it preaches it straight or some such thing. Uh, a number of people had read something on there that they considered inappropriate, unnecessary. Oh, this is sort of scandalous. Maybe it was. They wanted me to know about it. And I said, I would not read that website on principle. They are critics. They are complainers. They do the devil's work criticizing God's church openly, bitingly, awfully. And you want me to read that. Now, I wouldn't get up in the pulpit and say what they write, but you would want me to sit down here and in private read what they write and maybe celebrate it and maybe send a link to somebody else. We've got to be careful, ladies and gentlemen, that we're not doing the devil's work in some holy way. Oh, you need to know. Oh, you need to know what happened in this place. You need to know about this scandal or another. I'm not suggesting we ought to be in the dark. I'm not suggesting that there's never a place to know, but I am suggesting there's never a place for muckraking. Whoever makes problems in the church makes problems, is, is, is harming that which is the apple of Christ's eye. We don't want to do that. So, friend of God, what I'm suggesting is that, that we may have some complainers in our midst who don't complain with their words, but maybe complain with their actions. And, and don't take me too far about this complaining thing. If there's a problem, pray about it, address the right person, speak to someone, send a nicely worded email, pull somebody aside and ask a polite question. I, I'm not going too far with that. But don't chum the waters, producing what ultimately will be a feeding frenzy where somebody will lose perhaps a limb. We don't want to do that. Uh, we can do real damage without even meaning to. So let us be careful about our murmuring, whether it be by our words or through our actions, supporting the murmuring and the divisiveness, that's really what I'm talking about, of others. That person is like the second son in the parable Jesus taught. One son said to his father, I'm not going to do what you ask, and then he does what he's asked. The second one when asked to work in the vineyard, says, I'm going, and then he doesn't go. Matthew 21, we wouldn't speak out loud and say that we disagree with Jesus. We wouldn't damn him for spending time with a drunk or a prostitute or an enemy of the state. We'd be all for that. When it comes to showing the same sort of concern for the lost, we might 
cheer him on. We might talk about how we believe the truth. We might proudly wave our flag of church affiliation. We would reach into our bag of tricks and pull out our baptismal certificate and say, look at this, I'm a card-carrying church member, but then never go to his help. Can you imagine that? That kind of hypocrisy, standing up for Jesus, but never going to his help in the work to reach the lost, that kind of hypocrisy is hatred for our fellow human being disguised as holiness. It's neglect masquerading as love for God. When I was a child growing up in a Catholic church, we sang a hymn that haunted me then. And were I to think about it today, it would haunt me now. The words in that song say, strengthen in our hearts the love we owe to one another. How can we love God above and not our brother? I thought about that as a kid. I had an older brother I despised, but that song would go around in my head and I knew it wasn't God's will for me to hate. You can say what you want about your faith in Jesus, but your actions or lack thereof speak louder than your words. Jesus said, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. So I'm going to recap what I just said, lest your head is trying to get itself around what I just said. You might never complain about Jesus reaching the lost. You might never criticize somebody winning a soul but are you reaching the lost? Are you reaching a soul? That's the question for us tonight, and I don't intend to let you or me off the hook. Now let's talk for a second about Jesus hanging out with sinners. It's really, really important for us to notice this. Jesus didn't spend time with sinners because he was endeavoring to help sinners to feel better about their sins. He did not laugh at their dirty jokes. He did not tell them they were okay in their sin. People do that today for some inexplicable reason. Even church members will go out of their way to cheer on people who are destroying their lives. Jesus didn't do that. It seems like the rush to judgment has been replaced by a rush to tolerance. Neither are healthy. Might I give you a concrete example of what I mean? When some confused young person comes out of the closet and declares that they have chosen some kind of alternative sexual direction, just look on their Facebook feed or their Instagram feed. I'm not saying you'd go be an inspector, but were you to see that, you would see that there were church members every single time who say things like you do you live your truth god bless you or worse i am so proud of you christians saying that to a christian who has just made a catastrophic decision no friends oh we don't want to criticize we should not condemn oh no we should not condemn but my we shouldn't cheer somebody on who is running into the arms of the devil, whatever their little kink or whatever their little bent or their little persuasion or their habit or their addiction. We, imagine that. We can't do that. In the parable of the prodigal son, later in the same chapter, the son left the father's home. The Spirit of God spoke to the son's heart and he returned. I was talking with Wes Peppers about this, and Wes, and Wes made this following point. It was an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it. The son came home, 
But the father didn't change anything about the home. He didn't say, because you have chosen to live a certain way, I will relax my standards around here. He didn't say, I'm going to make things different here so they would be more to your sinful liking. He didn't need to. Because when the son had a change of heart, suddenly he wanted to come home. And the things about his father's household that used to chafe now attracted him instead of repelling him. So, friend of God, we don't need to lower the bar, lower the standard. We don't need to be Pharisees and judgmental and hateful. Love one another. Love your kids. Encourage those around you to love the church. I'm going to digress here for a second for the simple, because I can, I think is what the reason is. But there's something that we just got to know. You know, our kids make dumb decisions at times. Parenthood is nothing more than preparing your children for the time that they make decisions for themselves. That's what it is. They don't always make wise decisions. I'm going to tell you something. We rack our brains. How do we keep our young people in the church? We, we, We spend money and we conduct seminars and we consult experts and we gather together. How do we save our young people? What can the church do? Well, all the church can do is is sort of lock the gate after the horse is bolted or maybe leave the gate open and hope that the horse finds its way back. What I mean is, if you're putting your eggs in that basket, it's just a little too late. It's not that we shouldn't do something. We should. We should do whatever we can. But you know where the work of, of keeping our kids in the church begins and ends, really? In the home. In the home. I know what you're thinking. There's someone here saying, Pastor, We did everything right. Church, Sabbath school, pathfinders, adventurers. Uh, Church school, we did everything right and it all went wrong. (sighs) Sorry. I'm not telling you it's your fault. You wouldn't take the credit if your kids turned out right. You probably shouldn't take the blame if they don't. Because they do have a mind with which to think. It's it's really, it's on them. But but here's what parents do. You, You model faith in God an attractive faith in God. And so you have family worship at home and you don't yell at your kids and you love your kids and you bear with them when they make dumb mistakes. And when you go to church, you say, praise the Lord, that was great. And in the car on the way home, you don't dissect the preacher because of his or her lack of wonderful preaching. You you speak words of affirmation, positivity. Oh, man, you, you, you struggled to get something out of that. Well, what did you get out of that? You, you, you make this as positive as you can. Children don't want to see hypocrisy in the home. They can smell it a mile off. They don't want you feeding them Bible stories and then playing secular music in the home, taking them to Sabbath school and then taking them to the movies. I'm not criticizing movies. I mean, I, I would, but I'm not. I'm simply saying that Sabbath school cannot compete with special effects and, and Marvel movies or whatever they might be today. Just can't compete. It's like feeding your kids Cheetos and M&Ms and then wondering why in the world they don't like broccoli. It's because you've, you, it's what you fed them. You, you developed in them a distaste for that which was good. So every young parent needs to know, every parent needs to know, model faith. Let them see it work in you. Get them involved in church. Take them to the work. Be, go on a mission trip. Be supportive. 
Don't rip the church, build it up. Pray for your kids, pray with your kids. I'd love to tell you that's a guarantee, but it's not. It's not. But that's the place to start, and you do much less than that, and you are setting a snare before the feet of your children. As someone said to me recently, it is not love that tells a sinner they are okay in their sin. It's a terrible kind of viciousness that tells a person that they are okay on, an, on a healthy path when they are on the path to destruction. Which is not to say that any of us have been commissioned to correct the erring. If you think that you have been commissioned, gifted with the spiritual gift of correction, then you're probably wrong. But God has said ours is the ministry of reconciliation, and that is true. We've been commissioned, every one of us, to lead them to Jesus. I'm reading now, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They had lied about Jesus many times. They said, he said he'd destroy the temple and then build it again in three days. Lies! Jesus never said that. They lied about him again and again. They accused him of blasphemy and Sabbath breaking. More lies. But here they were right demonstrating that even a broken clock is right every so often, twice a day at least. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. True, absolutely true. Did you know that? This man, Jesus, receives sinners. We got to know that and, and actually believe that. A friend of mine told me just the other day about somebody that she knows who did something wrong. It was something she should not have done. And then she spent the next 30 years believing God did not love her. No, we can't think like that. God might not like some of what you do, but He loves you. You are His child. Your actions don't change the fact that you are His child. He loves you. I read in the book of Jeremiah recently. You know, some of what God says in the book of Jeremiah would strip the paint off furniture. It is serious. But at the same time, in the same book, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. In Jeremiah, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you hope and a future. Two verses later, God says, and you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You can hear the love in God's heart, the pathos in God's voice. This is a God who loves people, a God who loves you. There's somebody here tonight, and you just cannot believe that God loves you. After the things you've done, you think, who would love me? Yes, that's a good question in human terms, but God is not human. God is divine, and His love just doesn't fail. And you cannot come to camp meeting and then leave here thinking that God doesn't love you, or God is done with you, or you have no future with God. That's a lie. The devil tells lies like that. I'm here to tell you the truth. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that if you believe, even at the eleventh hour, if you believe, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Tell that to your errant teenage kid. You cannot outsin the love of God. But there's a grandmother here tonight. She's not sure about where she stands with God. Now you are, sister. You are a child of God, but I make mistakes. Repent, but I might make another mistake. Repent again. 
take hold of the hand of Jesus and believe that for Christ's sake, God loves you and accepts you and that nothing anybody can do to snatch you out of his hand. Adventist, you can be good on doctrine and bad on salvation, which means you got everything upside down. God still loved my homosexual son. Are you out of your mind? Don't ask that question again. Yes, he does. How can you be so irresponsible as to ask the question, does God love my drug-addicted daughter? Are you kidding? Jesus died for her. She's done some dumb things. So have you. God loves you. Suffer along with your kids. You know the Bible says, the long-suffering of our God is salvation. Can you believe that? The patience of God equals salvation for us because he doesn't cut us off. As long as there is life, there is hope. I tell you what, in Ezekiel chapter 6, God says he is broken over the unfaithfulness of his children. Broken. Other translations say crushed. So here you've got God saying, I'm crushed by what you've done in Ezekiel. But in the same book, God says, a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you an heart of flesh. Don't waste a nanosecond thinking that God won't accept you after what you've done. He will. What does Calvary mean but God saying, I, I will accept you. I will take you back at any moment. I will love you freely. I will heal your backslidings. The gospel is powerful. It contemplates our complete recovery from the power of sin. God is love. You come to God with your faults. Come to God with your dysfunction. Come to God with your brokenness. Come to God with your failings and know that the sovereign God of the universe receives you. Jesus even said to a bunch of people who were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I am knocking on the door of your heart. Can you imagine? You'd think that Jesus was knocking on the door of the heart of all the big shots, all the holy people, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Elder Wilson and all of the people that we love to think are so close to God. But he's knocking on the hearts of them, sure, and ours as well. The great unwashed, the sinful ones, the struggling ones. Jesus says, just let me in and I will come in and we will have sweet fellowship together. This is the love of God. Surely this settles it. The Bible says our Savior receives sinners. And thank God for that. Jesus knows he's got to get through to both groups of people. The publicans and the sinners know that the spiritual leaders consider them to be worthless. Jesus has got to reach their hearts. The scribes and Pharisees, keep in mind, have watched this unconventional religious teacher come out of obscurity and steal their thunder. They are not attracting great crowds. There are not people bringing their sick into the streets because some rabbi comes past. This is Jesus who doesn't speak like other men. There's power in what he does. And they don't like that. He did not go to their schools. He never asked for their permission or their opinion. And he is teaching a completely different set of ideals and painting a radically different picture of God. Of course they hate him. They are not capable of thinking rationally. They are denying the obvious. They have witnessed him work miracles. But they haven't worked miracles. 
and it's making them furious. Jesus longs to reach them. He wants to reach the hard-hearted ones. Wants to soften their hearts. And so he says, What man of you, anthropos, person, which of you, be you male or female, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it. Man, Jesus knew how to go for the jugular, didn't he? With a thundering velvet hand, he massaged the heart of everyone within the sound of his voice. Then and now, which one of you? The, the idea was, you'd all do this right. Jesus wasn't saying, is there one here today? Jesus was you'd do this, wouldn't you? You'd do this. Who would not? This is what Jesus was saying. Who wouldn't do this? In other words, who would even dream of not doing what I'm talking about? Which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and discovered one was lost, wouldn't go and look for the lost sheep? The answer he elicits from every one of his hearers is, well, of course I would do that. You would be thinking the very same thing now. Who wouldn't? The unspoken question then is, if the answer is so obvious, then why aren't you doing it? That's the question that Jesus would ask us now. A man with a hundred sheep loses one from a perspective. That's not a big deal. I mean, these were sheep men, not horses. You can buy sheep today for a couple of hundred dollars. I remember being a kid growing up in New Zealand where at the time we had 60 plus million sheep. You could buy one at times when prices were low for five or six bucks. Not worth a whole lot. You can buy a lamb today for about a hundred. I'm surprised it's that high. So if you have a hundred, two hundred dollar sheep, you've got twenty thousand dollars worth of sheep, of animals. Lose one and you're still worth 19,800. Barely a difference. Not a big... Now, if these were horses, you'd be highly motivated. Cattle, that would be a matter of real urgency. This is not a man who had 100 luxury cars and one of them was stolen. Did you hear about that ship a few months ago? Sailing across the Atlantic. Cargo ship caught on fire. And on, bo on board, this is not funny. 4,000 luxury cars, 1,100 Porsches. There were Lamborghinis, Audis, 189 Bentleys. People were getting phone calls from the dealer. Oh, that Lamborghini, mm -mm -mm. sorry, uh, not good. We'll get you another one. But this is not a man. This farmer didn't lose a Bentley. It was a sheep. So why is the man so motivated? Think of this. It cannot be due to the inherent value of the article that was lost. I imagine there might have been a wealthy Pharisee who might have thought, I wouldn't go back. Hundred sheep lose one. I wouldn't go back. Easy question to answer. Who would do that? One fellow might have been thinking. You'd have to leave 99 of them behind. You'd have to secure them in a sheepfold. Then you'd have to retrace your steps, maybe at night, Maybe at some considerable danger to yourself. Maybe. Why would you do that? There's 
an easy answer. Others, let me tell you a story. I'm walking in my street the other day, and as I'm walking, I hear a boop on the ground. I'm sorry, sorry, it wasn't a boop. It was more like a pop. I don't want to give you the wrong impression and mislead you. It was a pop. It was not a boop. Big difference. I'm walking along and pop. I, what was that? And I looked over, and there was this little thing. Man, I should have got a picture to put on the screen and ask you what it is. It was a little thing, and it was, it was just like, it was like a slug, and it had two dots somewhere up here, and, and then it had these two little antennae that came out. They retracted. I touched it, and ah, I like this. And it would, it would rock backwards and forward like that. I took a wee video, took a couple of photos. It was only 100 yards from our, our, from our gate, uh, driveway. I went and I saw my wife, Melissa. Melissa, what's this? She said, man, I don't know. Maybe, um, I don't know. But she's, she's very, very smart. Got opposites attract. She's very smart. And she said, well, maybe it's a... Um, Whatever you call a butterfly before it's a butterfly. Maybe it's one of them. Caterpillar of something. Didn't look like I didn't see any legs. She said, uh, maybe, she said, those, they might be, it might be a lunar moth. She looked it up online. I didn't even know how she found it. She said, I got it. It's a swallowtail, but it's a little blob. And she said, where is it? I said, it's out there. Oh, we have to go and get it. I didn't say this, but I thought, you know, we really, we really don't have to go and get it. <laughs> By now, if it's really what you say it is, a bird pff, probably got it. Why would we have to go and get it? We went out there. Pff, I mean, I told you my wife is a runner. Pff, we went out there to the street. It was not there. <gasps> my wife. What? Oh, there was some blob <laughs> fell out of a tree. That's why it plopped, because it fell out of a tree. And my wife goes, oh, where is the I mean, I mean, if it was uh, one of them uh, tomato hornworm things, I'm going to tell you what I do to those. You know what I'm talking about, right? Hornworms? Oh, yeah. We go out there, and I, I, I promise you, this has nothing to do with revenge. I take that back. It's not a promise. We'll pick them off the, off the plant, and I don't want to stamp on them because ugh. I'll take them out into the cul-de-sac. There's a brick out there. If you're from the people for ethical treatment of animals, if depending on where you hit it, the thing will go. And I'm saying, that used to be leaves of my tomato plant. So that's a bad worm. This is a swallowtail in, in, in the making. But we turn, and there it is. It's, a, it's, it's hobbling across the street. My wife goes and grabs it, brings it inside. We got to save this. 
I mean, fair enough. I mean, I'm not against that, but it was a, it was a bug. <laughs> Fell out of a tree. Must be a dumb bug. What, why, why didn't it stay in the tree? <laughs> We're out there saving it. If you come to my house, come into my kitchen, we've got this, this, this jerry-built terrarium with sticks and leaves, and this thing has turned into a chrysalis. And so hopefully in a little while, we'll see the little guy break out in a swallowtail go and fly, fly away. And I'll be sure if it gets anywhere near my plants, I let it go. After all we've been through. There was a point in me telling you that. My wife is compassionate. Oh, I am too. You're not towards hornworms. I have more compassion on my tomato plants than my hornworms. That brick. Hornworm. What in the world? Jesus saying, you'd go back for a sheep. Yeah, I got a hundred. You got 99 nuts. Ah, you lost one. Dumb animal. Sheep are supposed to follow. This one is too dumb to stay with the pack. Let it go. Probably going to breed dumb lambs. But as somebody knows, as my wife who saved a, I didn't even know what you call that, a, a swallowtail bug. As my wife would tell you, you have to go back. Compassion tells you to go back. Now, lest you think I'm a bug murderer, I'm the one in my house who chastises my son for killing spiders. Some little spider, he takes off the shoe. Bam, bam, bam. I think it's enough. No, bam. I'm the one who says, no, take it outside. Spiders are people too. Let it live. It's not hurting you. I'm the guy who saves the spiders. My wife won't even save a spider. I'll save a spider. You have to go back for a sheep. Compassion demands you to go back. It's got nothing to do with what they're worth in financial terms. Nothing. How could you sleep at night if you didn't at least go back and look? And there's the question, right or not, I have no difficulty imagining some poor fallen soul thinking, man, you just can't leave that sheep out there. You got to go back. And as we say this, we are keeping in mind that this is a picture of how God treats sinners. This is a parable about the gospel. This is a parable about the love of God for sinners. It's not that we are worth anything in dollar terms. There are almost 8 billion of us. You think God's going to care if he misses one? Yes, he is. You don't understand. If you had 8 billion of anything, you wouldn't care less if you lost one. Bill Gates, he got a bazillion dollars. If he lost one, he's going to lose no sleep. You understand what I'm talking about? But God loses a soul, and he is moved. He is moved. It is love that drives God to seek the lost sheep. For God so loved the world. In fact, how did the shepherd even know that he had a sheep missing? You can't tell the difference between 99 and 100 at a glance. You can't. I can't imagine anything. If there's 100 of them and you took one away, you'd notice that it was lost. You have to count. And so the shepherd 
maybe at the end of the day, is counting. He's, and you, how do you count sheep, man, when they wander around? He's counting. Maybe it was when they lay themselves down to sleep. He is counting. The shepherd was checking. He cared enough to notice that one was missing. God cares enough to know when you are missing. He cares. He notices when there's a lost sheep, when somebody is wandering. You read Ezekiel chapter 34. I don't have time right now. That is where God declares that he is the good shepherd. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel with the wheels in the wheels. Ezekiel, God says, I am the good shepherd. Read Ezekiel chapter 34. Probably the best known passage in all of the Old Testament deals with the shepherd and his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He, taketh, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters, restores my soul. Listen, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. You've got to understand something about the love and the care, the paternal love of our heavenly Father. He goes after the lost until he finds it. How long did he take? We don't know. We are not told. Was it an hour, a day, two days? I don't know. But he expended the effort. I want to tell you something. God created a world, and then it was, it was, it was taken away, wrested away by a jealous devil. No, really, God saw it given away by some unthinking human he had created not too terribly long before. He saw his people dive headlong into the abyss of sin, destroyed the world with water, hoping things would improve. In spite of his pleading, sending his prophets, rising up early and sending them, things did not improve. He said, I will send my son they will reverence my son, but he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, made a grave with his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Even though he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Friend, I'm wanting to go somewhere with this. Don't look at the clock. God had compassion on the lost. The question isn't even a question. It's a statement. It's a statement. So must we, mustn't we? If the lost are precious to Jesus, they must be precious to us. We are in danger of building institutions and lovely houses of worship and getting ourselves well-educated and in doing so, congratulating ourselves for our theological acuity, having sharpened its edges on the razor strap of both intellect and ego, lining up behind our favorite preachers and our favorite authors and our favorite social media darlings. We are in danger of doing all of that and forgetting why we are here. And when we do that, we slide, we shift, we forget, we drift. When we forget why we are on this earth, we metamorphose into that which we despise. We're no longer publicans and Pharisees. Instead, 
sorry, we are no longer publicans and sinners. Instead, we are scribes and Pharisees looking down our noses at the lost and eventually at Jesus. Oh, we won't give up on him completely. We may even serve at church. We'll get a job. We can keep our hands clean. We'll look the part. And then we will be like the priests and the Levites who passed by on the other side of the road. Listen to me. We are suffering. Where are the laborers? It's hard to find church school teachers anymore. It's hard to find young people who want to go into the ministry anymore. It's, it's hard. Well, the church is wondering what's going to happen when all those on the verge of retirement retire from the ministry. They're going to lay down their swords and their shields, masses of them. Frankly, there's a wee part of me that thinks it's ultimately going to do us good. Maybe we will have to step into the gap and do what we should already have been doing. But the concern is that there are too few entering into the harvest. You don't have to be a full-time church worker, no. But God calls us all to be full-time workers for Him, whether we are in medicine or in finance or education or transport, whether we are retired or running a business or working in an office or building bridges and roads. Jesus went after this world until He found it. The shepherd in the story searched for the lost sheep. He searched, searched. Every one of us has colleagues and neighbors and family and friends who are lost. And beyond that, and beyond that there is a world rapidly breaking down into a fetid, putrefying mess. Of course, that lost sheep represents this world. The theater of grace, of, of the grace of the Almighty. That infinitesimally small dot floating in a vast universe to which Jesus came to save us from our sins. And remember, he says, I have no hands but yours. In heaven, he says, where are the laborers? Who's taking this seriously? Now, thank God you will find people who will tell you about their missionary activities. Thank God many of them are here tonight. They are sharing books and invitations and BibleStudyOffer.com cards, and they're pointing people to websites and inviting them to church and, and, and talking them on airplanes, even when they might not feel like doing so initially. And there are people responding, thank God, thank God, we just held meetings in the Pacific Northwest. I met a lady at the meetings. Her, her church member physician invited her, he started telling her about the meeting. She said, and I was hoping he would invite me. And you think people don't want to know. Are you kidding? I was hoping he would invite me. There are people near you who want you to pray for them, want you to listen to them, want you to open the Bible. And by the way, listen, I'll, I'll say this because I really want to. You know, when that's, this is the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost son and the parable of the lost coin, which sounds awfully like somebody inside the house who's lost. Hey, listen, don't neglect the people in your church who are, who are distant. There's someone coming to your church who doesn't have a friend. Go home and be that friend. There's someone coming to your church who's never been invited home for Sabbath lunch. It's on you now. Make that invitation. There's someone who came to an evangelistic series and was baptized, but they never ever came beyond the periphery because nobody reached out. Come on and reach out. Let us go home to our churches and reach out even to those in the church. Let's not just think of the folks out there. If there's someone in the church who needs a hug, needs a smile, needs a handshake, needs love, needs a loaf of bread, a ride to the supermarket, a shoulder to cry on, a listening ear, 
let's remember them. If we don't seek the lost out there or in here, they will go to hell and ultimately be reduced to ashes. The sheep in the parable, ultimately nothing good would have happened if it was not found. Unable to defend itself, a predator would have picked it off. Maybe in trying to drink water from a flowing stream, it would have fallen in and drowned. It would have died of thirst or hunger. Compassion demanded the shepherd go back for the sheep. He wasn't going to lose much if he lost one sheep. Compassion said, you got to go back. What is compassion demanding of you today, of us today? You are not too young. You are not too old. You are not too inexperienced. I'm too shy. Don't give me that. Not my gift. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. How many people are you praying for regularly, praying for their salvation? If the answer is none, then no matter who you are, start praying now for somebody. Ask God to give you a burden. Don't wait for the next evangelistic series. Evangelism must be the lifeblood of our church. Not an event we plan for in October. Something we do all the time. Tell God you're willing to reach out, even in your inexperience and inexpertness. Tell God you're willing to think and pray. If you are feeling uncomfortable, that's the Spirit of God speaking to you right now. In September of last year, six men in Israel described as Highly dangerous Palestinian security prisoners tunneled out of one of Israel's most secure prisons. They came out of the ground directly under a watchtower, and they got away because the guard was asleep and didn't see them. We must not be asleep. We got to see them and grab them for Jesus, even if they say no we're going to do our best to win souls or die trying. This parable speaks of God's limitless love for the human family. Imagine being a sinner and believing God has no use for you. But here we see a God who crossed the universe specifically to demonstrate to the world that He loves the lost. And He'll do everything He can to win them to Himself. There's a woman born in, well, a baby girl born in Scotland in 1830 in Edinburgh. Her name was Elizabeth Sephane. She died far too young, just 38 years later. She was a writer, and a poem that she wrote was found on a train in Scotland, quite miraculously. It had been printed in some kind of Christian bulletin by the singer and composer Ira Sankey. He was traveling on a train in Scotland with Dwight L. Moody. Picked up that newspaper, sitting on an empty seat. Sephane's poem was printed in there. The publication was called The Christian Age. Sankey liked it. He composed the tune, and the hymn became a classic in some circles. Here's a part of it. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of that fold. But one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold, away on the mountains, wild and care, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. 
and all through the mountains, sorry, and all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. We know how this parable ends. When he found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. You're happy about a sheep, brother. Yes, it lives. If you are a cattle rancher, or if you grow instead soybeans or potatoes, you might think, man, he must really love those sheep. And that's the point. He really does. God really does. I say unto you, there shall be joy in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. After all God has done, given, sacrificed, endured, of course He's thrilled with what has happened. But the question really is, are we? Do we care? We say we do, but do we? It's easy. You're all going to say amen, but well, your action's revealing. Go look at the church budget. Go look at the church budget. Guaranteeing you spend more on electricity than on evangelism. Budget ought to be turned upside down. Get evangelism off the bottom and put it up on the top. God will take care of the rest. If we make the main thing the main thing, if we are led by mission, if evangelism drives us, God will provide. God says, do you care? Will you do something to reach the lost? To reach out to the lost? Something. What's your answer to God's question today? There's a statue outside a church in San Diego. A statue with a difference. It has no hands. And on the statue there is a plaque that reads, I have no hands but yours. Please pray with me now, our Father and our God. Tonight we read about a Savior who crossed the universe to rescue this one sheep, and He reminds us tonight that there are sheep who have wandered away, and Lord, You are looking to us to, 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 to go after that one sheep. Oh, pray, yes, pray. Pray and go. Give and go. Want and do. Lord, would you lead us tonight to be the hands of Jesus? Friend, I have a question for you. Would you say to Jesus tonight, I'll be your hands? I'm not asking you even to know how. Surely in this place there are many who are active in ministry. But would you say tonight, I'll be your hands if you'll use me, use me. Can you raise your hand? I'm not watching. You sit on your hand if you wish. But if you have a warm, beating heart, would you raise your hand tonight? Lord, I want to be your hands. I want to use, I, I want to use my talents for your glory. I want you to use me somehow for heaven. Use my family, my home. 
my career, my practice, my job, use my finances, my funds, use my church, continue to use my conference. Here we are, Lord, look at our hands. You've got some more hands now. Use them for your glory. Seek and save the lost. Expand the census of heaven. We ask of thee, in Jesus' name, please say tonight, Amen and Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.